to discuss more about what it means to get to net zero are five energy industry leaders. May I now invite our moderator, Amy Axius, to introduce the panel, please. Um, over to you, Amy. Hello, uh, good morning from Seattle, Washington. I know all too well, just like Julio, the impact of the wildfires. So I appreciate that dynamic of the discussion. I now want to uh, introduce our panelists. So we have Trudy Sunset, uh, the CEO of Gasnova, uh, the state-owned, uh, Norway state-owned enterprise for carbon capture. We have Leila Benali, chief economist of the Arab Petroleum Investments Corporation. Will Gardner, CEO of Drax, a British electric power company. And Seifi Kasami, CEO of Air Products, an industrial gases company. And Mary Nichols, chair of California Air Resources Board, the Golden State uh, top environmental regulator. So I want to thank everybody, um, all the panelists for joining us today and for everybody tuning in online. And I want to start with a question for uh, the whole panelists. Um, given the amount of change that has occurred in the carbon capture, carbon removal area, uh, what do you think have been the biggest drivers of this change and what kind of impact has it had on the policy and the technology itself? Um, maybe Trudy, I'll, I'll start with you. Okay, I think um, people's awareness of the climate issue, the Paris Agreement obviously was very important, but I think also something has changed over the past year or so. I think that uh, people are looking more for solutions. How do we deal with this challenge? And so it appears to me that it's much more focused on technology and how you can apply it and how you can deploy it. And I think uh, to have that uh, focus is important going forward. Look for the solutions and to showcase what we can do. Great. Uh, Leila, I'll go to you. I think you're muted. Sorry. Sorry. We always do that. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, there is, I, I would definitely agree with Trude, uh, there is a, an increasing level of awareness. And I think part of, part of it is due to the similar sessions that we are having today. And I think what I personally perceived over the last couple of years, and particularly just before the, 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 the pandemic that the, the world has seen, is an increasing talk about how to make it work finance-wise. Because as, as we can see, when it comes particularly to CCUS, I think there is now an agreement, at, at least uh, among uh, policy circles and in the energy circles that it's, it's an important and critical technology. But when it comes to the financing of it, we still, we're still looking into uh, taking lessons from existing technologies and that might not always work to reach the scale that, that we want to reach indeed. So I think this is, we, we are uh, uh, in the right direction when it comes to the financing discussion, but we are not there yet. Chairwoman Nichols, I want to go to you um, and get your perspective, um, given the very progressive and aggressive policies that California has pursued on this front. How do you think this debate around carbon capture has changed in the last several years? Well, clearly there's recognition on the part of uh, leaders across the spectrum that uh, we're no longer talking about a hypothetical, theoretical, someday maybe we might have uh, capture and geological sequestration. We're talking about 
how can we make our decision-making processes work uh, more efficiently and uh, give everybody an opportunity who has to be involved in decision-making on a policy level to weigh in while at the same time not just uh, postponing uh, the, the decisions that need to be made. Uh, in California, where we have a, a goal uh, that is mandated of achieving zero net carbon by 2045, uh, we are working on our uh, next iteration of our overall plans for how we achieve that goal. And it will have to include consideration, and it will include consideration of CCUS, uh, and we have a tool that has been developed in recent years, which is a, a protocol as part of our uh, existing low carbon fuel standard, which mandates a reduction in uh, the carbon content of fuels that are sold in the state of California. We've created an economic incentive for people to develop these kinds of projects. So. Uh, it's at this point, I don't think a discussion of whether it's possible, but um, a recognition that the technologies are not what's holding us back. It's uh, figuring out how we get the incentives in the right place and the projects Welcome in the right the place so we can move forward. Sadie, from your perspective, um, how had this uh, debate evolved and, and what opportunities do you see? First of all, glad to be here with everybody, and uh, uh, thanks for the question, Amy. I think what has changed, Julio showed a few pictures last time, a few minutes ago. I mean, people are beginning to realize that global warming is not a hoax, that uh, you know the Earth is not flat. It, this is really a fundamental issue that the human race has to address, and I think. Everything that we do is at the end of the day driven by public opinion. And I think the public opinion in general, the most of the board is beginning to change to the fact that global warming is real. It is caused by humans. And therefore, we as a human race need to do something about it. And we do have the technologies and the know-how to address it. So why aren't we doing that? And I think what Mary and her team have done in California is set a good standard and a good roadmap in terms of giving the incentives for people, for people like us, to try to kind of uh, make uh, these things a reality. Great, thank you so much. Will, um, joining us from the phone, can you give us, us, um, give us your perspective from, from your company and primarily your business in the UK? Well, Amy, let me just first check. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Oh, brilliant. Um, apologies for not getting the video to work, but I'm glad that everybody can hear me. Um, first, let me just echo the, the thanks and congratulations to Julio, Alex, and others who worked on that report. Um, from my perspective, sort of being somewhat, I think, on the front lines with policymakers and others um, trying to uh, work through ways to get specs specifically to work in the UK. It's exactly the kind of material that I think we need right now um, to increase the intensity and sort of the urgency um, of the debate about carbon capture and storage in general, but also about greenhouse gas removals, for example, and the whole importance of, you know, ultimately geological um, storage. 
So again, I thought it was a great report and I look forward to being able to sort of use some of that data in, uh, in some of the work that we're doing. To answer the specific question, Amy, I think the what we're seeing in the UK is a move from sort of carbon capture and storage is sort of maybe a nice to have to a real um, need to have and something where there's real policy work happening. I'm, I'm quite encouraged by that. So, you know, again, I can talk more in detail about this later, but there's real work going on around hubs, um, as was discussed in the presentation. There's real work going on around support mechanisms for the transport and storage infrastructure, for um, carbon capture, for, you know, for gas, for industry, and also for BECs. So I think for me, we're starting to move from a scenario which was much more about, you know, a nice to have to something which is critical and actually there's real policy work happening. So I'm, I'm quite encouraged. Great, thank you so much. One theme I've seen sort of interject itself into the carbon capture debate is this, uh, something of course Julio knows well, and I've spoken a lot with Julio about it over the years, is carbon removal, uh, which is obviously related to carbon capture, but is different in terms of how the technology works. I'd like to get the panel's take on how do you see the landscapes different for carbon capture, you know, capturing carbon at the source versus uh, carbon removal of the of the sort that, say, carbon engineering based in British Columbia does. Do you see a, a distinction between those two types of technologies, and do you think that one has more potential from a business perspective and more uh, fills a more essential role in addressing climate change. Anybody wants to jump in on that? Um, maybe Layla, could we go to you? Oh, all right, I can I can jump in here. Um, well, I mean, I think it's it's very different in, in in a major way. I mean, one thing you asked us in the first question what how the debate has changed over the last couple of years but we didn't say what did not change over the last couple of years what, what has not changed is the that the world could not agree yet on a carbon price and uh as long as we we don't have a clear regardless of of what price is because from from an investor's the investor's perspective of course or uh, uh even from a consumer perspective i mean we respond to price signals at the end of the day so i i, I started with with that because i think that's a, a key point if if we don't have i would say a, a visibility on how mu how much it would take for the right to pollute in a way uh, it will we will continue to have a major difference between uh, carbon removal and carbon capture technologies because from from i would say uh, my my own personal perspective as an investor and a lender uh, it would be at this stage I would say much easier to find financial solutions uh, for for carbon capture because usually these are projects that are clustered uh, and 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 the capture is at production point and it's it's I would say relatively easier to to finance and and find a project financing mechanisms to again if if if, if the point is is to make them grow at scale. Uh, when it comes to carbon removal, I would say, from again, from a financing perspective, it would be very specific, very either site-specific or, uh, uh, I would say, utilization-specific. Uh, so it would be a bit more difficult to, to find, uh, I would say, a more clustered uh, finance, financing mechanisms for that. So for, for me, from that perspective, I, I think the two are very, very different indeed. Great. 
maybe I could just add one point on that, which is that uh, to the extent that um, uh, carbon capture is seen as a, a technique for maintaining uh, oil and gas production in California by utilizing wells that are suitable for uh, long-term carbon storage, there will be um, serious opposition. Uh, whereas there's a much greater, quicker uh, likelihood of being able to uh, get uh, local approvals and community approvals for projects that involve uh, decarbonization of other sectors. Great. Uh, Amy, if you have... Yes, Will? Sorry, if I can just jump in on this, because I think this is a... Um... I think there's a super important question and one which is very much central to sort of the work we're doing on BEX. Um, I might start out with the idea that I, I think they are importantly should be think, thought of as complementary. And I think the primary reason I say that is around infrastructure. So I'm again, sure I, I very much. But can you just quickly sorry? spell out the acronym for the few people who might not know? Oh, for BEX? So yes. sorry, so bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, and maybe I'll just give you a few minutes on what we are doing at Drax. So we um, have converted what were sort of four um, large coal-fired um, power generating units to using biomass, sustainable biomass, um, so effectively considered carbon neutral. And then we're, our plan is to now add carbon capture and storage on top of that so we get to what is, again, what we're calling here carbon removal technology. So effectively, we are taking more CO2 out of the atmosphere than we're putting into it. So uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, I think a very attractive way to do this, and we can do it you know, at costs. You know, again, comparing the cost of DAC, for example, the, I guess the lowest cost scenario there was about $200 a ton. Um, in, in, the, in the BEX that we're delivering, we can do it for less than $100, um, so, and, it's, and it's also ready today. So... I think a very attractive way of delivering carbon um, removal. But I guess two, two points I would focus on. One, in terms of the complementarity, it's the same transport and storage infrastructure that we need for carbon capture. So um, we are very much of the view that, you know, as a group or as a cluster, which is what we're building in the UK, what we call the zero carbon Humber, we should all be working together to sort of to enable that infrastructure to work to get the economies of scale um, that were highlighted earlier, so it's a complementary technology in that sense. Um, but actually what it can deliver in terms of um, the, the fundamental value of that permanent um, storage in the geosphere, I think is, is going to be coming recognized as, again, it was recognized earlier today as increasingly valuable and important over time. Um, and again, I think the, uh, that those technologies will be increasingly important and valuable uh, as, the, as we move forward. Great. Thank you so much. Uh Safi, did you have any comments on this question about how you view carbon capture technology versus carbon removal? Yes, Amy, if I may just uh, kind of expand this discussion a little bit. We are very focused, much focused in, we generate the CO2, how do we capture it? But what about talking about how do we get to the state that we just don't generate the CO2? What I'm trying to say is that we, and I mean by we as the human race today, we do have the know-how, we have the technologies, and we have the ability to produce 100% of our energy needs worldwide in the next 20 to 30 years from sources which are totally, totally carbon-free. 
So we don't even have to worry about capturing anything. And by that, what I mean is that we can harness the power of the sun, the power of the wind, and the power of hydropower to produce clean, green electricity. We can take half of that electricity and use it directly for our light transport, passenger cars, light trains, heating and air conditioning of our buildings, and running our light industry. Then the other half of the green, elect uh, green electricity, we can take that, use the electricity to break the bond between hydrogen and oxygen in water and produce hydrogen, and then use that hydrogen to power as a source of energy to power heavy duty buses, heavy duty trucks, uh, our steel industry, our heavy trains. So the whole thing can be totally free from carbon. And we do have the technologies and we, can, we have the ability to do this. So I think this should be the goal when we talk about 2045, 2050. And then in the meantime, I agree, we should focus on uh, carbon capture. Again, we have the technologies, we have the means, and we, uh, we know how to capture carbon. We know how to sequester it. It's just a matter of the economics and the incentives to do that. But I think the goal for the end should be that we need to have all of our energy produced from sources which are not dependent on carbon. Now, some people say, well, this is not practical because what is Europe going to do? What is Japan going to do? They don't have the sun and the wind and the energy. Well, they do what they do today. What does Europe do? They import their gas from Russia and they import their oil from Saudi Arabia. So in the future, you import your hydrogen from places that have the sun and have the wind and can produce it. So Saudi Arabia, 50, 20 years from now, instead of exporting oil, we export green hydrogen. And I really believe in this. And that is why we as a company have decided to invest $7 billion to uh, build a commercial plant in Saudi Arabia to demonstrate to the world that this is possible, it can be done at, economically, and therefore let's get on with it and go in that direction and really solve the problem. Rather than just thinking about, okay, we produce CO2 and now we capture it and put it back in the ground. Let's not just produce the CO2. Sorry for the long answer to your question, Amy, but... Uh, no, that's okay. Uh, hydrogen is definitely getting a lot of attention as of late. I, I want to bring up something that Chairwoman Nichols said, and unfortunately, she, she had to she had to to drop off. Um, but I think she raises an important point about some of the opposition that this type of technology faces. And what she said was, there's going to be a lot of opposition to any type of technology that is seen as furthering uh, and maintaining the oil and gas industry in California and perhaps in other parts of the world. Uh, Trudy, maybe I can start with you, given, you know, Norway is obviously a huge oil producing state um, country, but you're also at the leading edge of this type of technology. So what's your response to what is a common environmental criticism that carbon capture is just a way for the oil and gas industry to continue its dominance? 
I think it's an understandable criticism that we have to face. Uh, but let me share with you, we had a great day in Norway yesterday uh, where our government uh, announced that they will actually invest in uh, a new project that we called Long Sheep in Norwegian and Long Sheep in English. And this is a project we have worked on for five years together with industry partners. And industry partners are key because it's not just about the oil and gas business. This is also about uh, process industries. And process industries around the world emit 25% of the total emissions. So one fourth of the emissions comes from industry sources. And, and mean like oil and gas or cement? No, steel, cement, waste incinerator. So in the Longshik project that we got yesterday uh, announcing 16.8 billion Norwegian krona in support from our government uh, for the next 14 years. Uh, it's a fantastic project. It's actually the largest ever industrial climate project in Norway. And what we're trying to prove there, it's a combination of industry emissions like cement, uh, and we work with Heidelberg Cement, global producer of cement, and we work with Fortum, who's a waste incinerator. And then we are using the skills from the oil and gas business to develop an infrastructure for transportation and storage of CO2. This is enormously important because we cannot save uh, the world's climate without saving the challenges from the emissions from industry. There's no way you can re just replace by using renewables. You have to do that as well. You need all the tools in your toolbox. But this is a fantastic project and we are building an infrastructure for the rest of Europe. So we have surplus capacity in our store, inviting uh, industries from all across Europe. And we also share all the knowledge uh, so they can send their CO2 off to Norway for being stored offshore. And that's how we can transform also the oil and gas knowledge uh, that we have, the experience we have into a new industry where you're not uh, just emitting, uh, selling products, emitting CO2, but you're actually taking care of the CO2 that is necessary to remove from industry sources. And back to your previous question, I think it's so important to see that the industry is engaged that they're willing to do this on their own plants. And this has to happen. And we're just starting to get there. Thank you. Great. I think, uh, Trudy, I definitely want to come back and ask you a little bit more about that big news you guys had yesterday. But first, let's stay on this topic. I think both Layla and Safi want to chime in on that. Layla, do you want to? Okay. Uh, Safi, you want to start? No, after you, Layla. Okay. Now, I just wanted to, to jump on the on the very interesting question of the role of the oil and gas industry and how uh, how we see that. I mean, I think uh, overall it's it's a golden opportunity for the oil and gas industry to to write this story on its own terms. It uh, it's an industry that has not been been very good at uh, at its communications. But but I think if you take the example of, of of CCUS in general, I think it's quite important to realize that they were that it's because of the 2021 20, 22 projects that you have around the world uh, they were they, they they the ability to mobilize resources for this project really stemmed from, from the convergence of three factors and uh, factor number one is the existence of a revenue driver and typically that revenue driver has been EOR enhanced oil recovery uh, so out of uh, uh, the 20 plus uh, projects that you have today in the world, I think 18 use CO2 for e for EOR, and you have only five uh, remaining that have uh, a geological storage. 
you have when when of course when oil prices uh, are high and and permit uh, you, you it actually maintain gives a much better economics for for the CCUS project uh, the other second factor that uh, uh, that enabled uh, the, the the mobilization of resources for those uh, CCUS projects is that the cost of capture was relatively on the low side so typically in a fertilizer or gas processing plant as opposed to the harder to abate sectors cement and steel simply because co2 separation is an inherent requirement uh, and of course the third factor uh, is a strong balance sheet or or a government grant if possible and because we still very have very limited uh, debt financing or no debt financing in CCUS. So typically, this is where the oil and gas industry came as, as a bellwether, basically, of, of, of CCUS. But the, 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 the real, as, as it was mentioned, I think, by Trude, uh, the, the hard-to-abate industries are the ones who would be benefiting, uh, I, I think, later on from, from these uh, advances. And I think uh, the, the, the answer to, to, Safi's question, to, to Safi's comments uh, uh, early on, I, I totally agree that on the incremental energy demand, it would be great if we can cover uh, with, uh, with, with zero uh, carbon technologies. But for the existing, and I think Jason showed a slide uh, early on, uh, with the existing petrochemicals plants and industrial plants that still have 20 years, 30 years to live, uh, you, you cannot just shut it, shut it down. So you have to find solutions. And for these plants, uh, we still don't have uh, a better monetization or revenue driver than the ones that are provided by the oil industry, at least in, in this region. Uh, this is how in, in, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, you, you, you were able to uh, find uh, mobilization of resources for, for these projects that we have here today. Uh, I will just want to add just one point on, on the point that uh, Safi was, was mentioning. It's definitely, there's ex definitely an exciting story uh, uh, happening for several, I think several countries, particularly in this region, that have access to low-cost uh, renewables. If you have the opportunity to, of course, uh, oversize your renewable plans, you might find a way to export embedded green electrons, if, if you may. But here again, I mean, you need to have a, a conjunction of several factors to be able to achieve that indeed. But I, I, I fully agree with his vision. Great, Safi, did you have a comment about the, the criticism from the environmental community and even beyond that, Democrats here in the United States and other progressive leaders around the world? What do you say to people who are concerned that carbon capture is just a a way for the oil and gas industry to, to stick around longer than it should. Now, Amy, I have to say I agree with them. I, I think that uh, we are dealing with an intelligent public. You cannot fool the public. I mean, if that is why I'm so insistent on the fact that we need to have a plan that we are going to generate our, our energy from carbon-free sources and then convince them that in the meantime we are going to do carbon capture in order to make it a better world because if we don't say that then carbon capture becomes a means for oil and gas to continue using hydrocarbon so i agree with that that is why as a company we are the world's leader in carbon capture we have the only commercial plant in the world for carbon capture so we know how to do that but we decided that that is not the only area that we need to focus on. We do need to go to zero carbon energy and demonstrate to the poor that that is a, 
punishment. I think uh, Mary Nichols' comment is very right on. If we do not address this thing, then the public will think that we are all a bunch of cynics and being puppets and being used for uh, the continuation of a policy that only benefits the oil and gas industry. And we certainly are not in that camp. So we want to get away from that. Amy, could I jump in there? Yes. Because I think, I think this also goes back to then your question about the difference between carbon removal and, and just pure carbon capture. Because if, you, if you're using the carbon capture to capture CO2, either, you know, either your direct air capture te technology, which is not you know, helping the oil and gas industry, or BECS, you know, using bioenergy plus carbon capture. So you actually get what, I, what we would call carbon negative, as in you are taking, you know, whatever you have negative emissions, how you're reducing CO2 in the atmosphere. If you're using carbon capture and storage to actually enable those types of technologies, then I think you, you, are, you basically deflect or you defeat the argument that it's only about supporting oil and gas, right? But the other, and the other thing for me is, again, the comments from one of the panelists earlier about, you know, we absolutely can get the energy system to be carbon neutral on its own. I think, you know, ultimately, I think that's, that's a very good ambition. But there were, I think, two things. One is there's always going to be challenges of balancing the system. But probably more importantly, um, other forms of abatement, other for, you know, industries which are hard to abate or agricultural, expensive to abate, will need you know, something to offset them. So the idea of negative emissions, I, something that's negative, using carbon capture and storage as a removal enabler, I think is actually is key sort of for both of those reasons. Great, and uh, just a quick time check. I know we, we got we were a little delayed from the onset, so if it's okay with everybody, I want to go. It's just a few minutes past 10:20 Eastern time, closer to 10:25 or so. Um, but if but if you need to jump off, just kind of give us a wave and, and let me know. Um, Trudy, I want to come back to you and just quickly kind of close the loop on this big news that you guys had yesterday. I've actually been to Norway to see part of, you know, what is now going to become this project. And clearly, there's a, a difference of opinions about um, the role of the oil and gas industry, which I think is great to have differences on a panel. Otherwise, it's, it's boring from a from a reporter perspective. Um, but Trudy, can you share what was the biggest uh, hurdle in getting this project over the finish line, and what what hurdles remain? Um, well, it's quite a complex project. So we're working with cement industry and a waste incinerator. Um, now the waste incinerator hasn't been fully financed yet. We're waiting to get support from EU because we also want to show that this is between different countries. So what we're trying to do is develop an infrastructure for all of Europe and hopefully, for instance, you can copy that also in the US or in Australia or uh, anywhere in the world. Um, so I think to get really good projects from the industry side where the industry is really engaged and interested and they really want to do it because you cannot push from governmental side to have the industry to do anything. But you can incentivize, you can support them and we have worked together with them for five years to mature this project. But um, I think also the awareness we talked about in the, in the introduction, I think uh, the industry has a big awakening. They want to do this. They see they have to reduce their own emissions down to zero. And so this is a fantastic project showing that that's possible. The oil and energy uh, part of, of this equation is actually to transport and store the CO2. You need geologists to uh, oversee that geologic storage is safe, that you 
can do it in a good way and that you can get public trust that this is a good solution. And that is also our main focus. So getting everything this together and then to get the political um, uh, willingness to finance this. That is the biggest hurdle that we just passed yesterday. And excuse me for being a bit uh, excited about that. Uh, it's so important. I think this will be a breakthrough for CCS technology globally. I think this is a fantastic project. And it's so great to have a prime minister that said on national TV yesterday, she said, uh, through the launch of this longship project, we contribute to stop emissions without stopping development. And this is what this is about. And we cannot uh, over, overlook the fact that the oil and gas business, the industry has a tremendous knowledge on dealing with geologic storage. And that is so necessary in order to save the world's climate. And we have to make use of that. On top of that, you can have new businesses like hydrogen from natural gas with CCS. That would be a fantastic future energy carrier that I think we'll see a lot of in the future. I want to ask what I call lightning round questions. So it's where I ask you guys a very clear question and then you answer with just, this will be an, it's sort of A, B or C option. Um, so what's the single biggest thing that's holding back carbon capture and carbon removal technologies? Is it A, cost or economics, B, politics and policy, or C, technology? I go first. Right. It definitely is the cost, and that is why we need a, a worldwide carbon tax. Great. Uh, I fully agree. Uh, a cost and economics, but don't let the economists do the politicians' work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would go with uh, with policy and politics because I think the solutions are there, and the cost is clear, and we need the government to get behind it. And I would say B, definitely. If you have the B in place, the cost will be there. I mean, then you'll deal yeah. with it. And then the same question for hydrogen. Is the biggest thing holding back hydrogen cost and economics, politics and policy, or technology? Uh, if B, if politics and policies, then I'll go with B. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with B as well. It's the same problem. Yeah. I, I would too. It's definitely B. It's the same question, same, actually. Same with me. Same with me. Because they have the technology. There's no question about it. So I want to end then with a very timely question, given your guys' answers to that. Uh, something that hasn't quite come up on this at this event yet is the looming uh, U.S. presidential election. And of course, um, America is not the the only country in the world, but it is very powerful when it comes to um, the, the government incentives that we have here and overall investment that flows in and out of the United States. So what are you watching for when it comes to this U.S. presidential election? Are, if Do you see a, a big sea change happening in the areas of carbon capture and removal and, you know, and sort of the, the cousin technology of hydrogen? Um, do you see a big sea change happening if Biden wins? Or do you think even if Trump wins re-election, despite his very obvious dismissal of climate change, do you think there could still be support for the technologies that we've been talking about today? Maybe Safi, why don't we start with you on that one? 
I'm too busy running my company to pay attention to politics. <laughs> 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 the politics and the policy are the biggest thing holding your company, these technologies back. Yeah. Yeah, but you are focused on the presidential election. I think what matters more than the presidential election is the House and the Senate. At the end of the day, that is where legislation is made. So I think the, the consequences of that is more important than the consequences of the presidential election in terms so, of what we're talking about. So, and you think that progress could be made regardless of which party is controlling which chamber? Well, obviously the two different parties have different policies, but I think at the end of the day, I, I think no matter who is the president and which party controls Congress, what counts is the general public opinion. And I think fundamentally, public opinion is shifting toward the realization that global warming is real and we need to do something about that. And the biggest driving force for that, I know in our company, is the younger people. Because the people are saying, look, this is my future. You guys are not going to be here 50 years from now, but I'm going to be here. And therefore, they are the ones who are going to drive policy, no matter who is in power, because the public opinion will shape what nations do at the end of the day anyway. Will, um, if I can get you to jump in here, what are you watching for out of the US elections this year to the degree that it could impact um, the technologies that you're pursuing? Well, I, I'm hoping that no matter who is in power, at the end of the day, we would get to the point that there is a need for a global tax on carbon. Right now, California has a great program thanks to Mary's effort. I think we should adopt that nationwide in the US and then worldwide we should have a tradable carbon tax and that will go a long way to solve a lot of the energy problems, the energy issues that we are talking about. Great, do we still have Will on the phone? Yeah, I'm here and, and I, maybe I'll just um, follow up on that one briefly because I think the, the very interesting article um, a few weeks ago in the FT about how you know, EU sort of EUAs, so the carbon tax credits in the, in the EU were basically a very strong one-way bet, i.e. that the value of them would only be rising. Um, and I think if we can actually make sure that the, that value doesn't just go to traders or just become a cost to those people who are trying to reduce emissions, but actually become a value opportunity for those people who are trying to do carbon removal technologies, so that if you remove a ton of CO2 from um, the biosphere, put it into the geosphere, you get paid the value of that credit in some way. Um, that could become a huge economic opportunity, business opportunity, and ultimately lower the cost of decarbonization globally. Um, and if we can get the debate to move towards, you know, how do we make um, climate change both a way to solve a, a major you know, global problem, but also an opportunity for business, I think that would be a huge step forward in a political sense. Great. Um, and Layla, maybe I'll go to you and Trudy, I'll give you the final word. Um, so Layla, what's your um, take on the elections here in the United States? Um, are you, are you, do you think the outcome for inve investments in carbon capture and related technologies could be drastically different depending on how it goes? 
Uh, right. Again, I I think we are talking about a much more global uh, challenge than 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 that. But but it's true that a lot of the regulations that are uh, happening in in the U.S. and California, being 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 a leader on many fronts, are are sort of try to be replicated out, outside. Now, the issue that we are facing is that regardless, basically, of 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 who wins at the end of the day, I think I, I would go with with with, with Safi's Safi's thoughts. Uh, I think, as as I said earlier, I mean, as long as we don't have a carbon price more than a tax, but really a carbon price that can enable to 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 monetize. Uh, uh, one way or the other, and incentivize uh, different technologies, and not only CCUS, but different technologies. I think that would make make a tremendous uh, leap, leapfrog for, uh, for for everything. And we only have uh, the next uh, three, four, five years to do that. Uh, Trudy, a final word. Yeah. Yes. Um, although it's obviously important, the election in the U.S. I think that what's happening in Europe and other parts of the world also matters and will influence the US. So what we see in Europe, despite the pandemic that we're in the middle of, uh, the European Green Deal is about to become a big deal. And with the support we have from our government and other governments and, and the EU, uh, which also EU has, has announced a lot of support for CCS with funding, I think that we will change the way the, the industry, the process industry is operating and that with uh, more efficient processes, less emissions and down to zero using CO2 capture and storage, you'll have to do the same in the US in order to compete, no matter Great. what the election outcome will be. I want to say thank you to all of our panelists and to the audience um, tuning in. I'll now hand things back to Chica Lauren to conclude the program. Good. Thank you to all our uh, great speakers and, and thank you very much for Amy for moderating a very thought-provoking discussion. Uh, next, we have Sir Alex Halliday of the Earth Institute at Columbia University who will be giving us his closing remarks. So over to you, Sir Alex. So I just want to say thank you very much. It's been an amazing uh, period of time, just one and a half hours of astonishing discussion, some incredible people and points being made, uh, but it really highlights the importance of looking at this from a multidisciplinary point of view, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're building a climate school at Columbia University that actually will focus on transdisciplinary working. I wanna thank um, Julio and uh, Alex for their amazing report. It was just uh, astonishing and it's great to, I'm looking forward to reading it in more depth um, I also want to thank Brad Page and Jason for um, hosting this thing and actually getting it off. It was great to hear from uh, Nick Stern and to get his views on it uh, as well. And then um, uh, one couldn't but be impressed by Senator Lisa Mikoski and what she had to say about the seriousness of which this is now being pushed through in the U.S. government. And it does actually uh, highlight one of the things that was said just now, that the uh, the way the um, Senate and uh, and the House actually respond to this is the most important thing going forward. So we've got, I think, every reason to be optimistic uh, because of the importance of bipartisan support for these issues. Um, and then I really found the last discussion with Amy um, that Amy Harder hosted uh, really great to hear from industry experts about what they think. And again, very inspiring. 
So maybe I could just quickly say a few things about why we're building a climate school, because it's actually to do with the needs of people in the future that we think need to be addressed. This is a massive issue. Climate change is a massive issue in terms of uh, intergenerational human rights. And we need to think about what we're sort of delivering for the world and what we're providing for the future of succeeding generations going forward. And the issues of social justice are massive in this area. And so I, it's not just about uh, economics and business and opportunities and uh, current dangers. It's actually about what, what we're going to end up with in the future. It represents the biggest challenge of our time. And, uh, but at the same time, it's deeply interesting. And today's discussion is a good example of why this is really fascinating area to be working in with a lot of scholarly work still to be done. But also there are a lot of young people who want to learn more about it and we want to provide the kind of education they need so that they can work in businesses and government going forward uh, with a, a deep understanding of climate as an issue. Um, things are going to get worse. And so I think one of the things to obviously say here is that even without any further emissions, if we could miraculously stop them, the world, the, the Earth actually has a sort of lag time. So we know things are going to get worse still. Uh, but also there are new facets of the climate system that are being discovered as the as global warming happens, as we're seeing climate change, we're discovering new things about the way the Arctic's uh, ice sheets are melting, which we hadn't really predicted. We're seeing new things about the way wildfires work and we're seeing new things about the way storms, big storms are going to behave. And so until Hurricane Harvey, we hadn't seen, and some of that stuff, we hadn't really seen such massive rainfall. And there's, so understanding the climate system is something that's going along with climate change. And that means that we need to also be quite concerned about the fact that we don't actually understand everything right now, and things could get significantly worse than we've been predicting. So there is an urgency about this that is really, really uh, incredible. We have to work very, very hard and regard it as a crisis rather than just a problem or a phenomenon. Um, one of the things we need to do, therefore, is to think about this in terms of solutions. And of course, this has all been about solutions today. Um, and those solutions, rather like the ones we've been talking, particularly the ones we've been talking about today, require massive investment. Uh, and it's not just large scale investment in terms of new companies and infrastructure. Uh, we actually need new research to be done. We need governments to take that research seriously and to invest in it. And of course, the European Green Deal is a very exciting uh, sign in this direction that Europe is, as a whole continent is um, thinking about this much more proactively than maybe some other parts of the world have been. Um, but also, I think we need to encourage people to be highly innovative. We need technology that's sort of out of the box thinking. And increasingly, we come across people who are entrepreneurs and investors who are looking for technologies that are actually very different and original and creative. So we need to create an environment in which that can be developed, um, both with government funding and, of course, with investment funding. And I guess lastly, we need policy. And it's quite clear that um, the way in which policy is developed uh, through organizations like the Center for Global Energy Policy, uh, providing a sort of feed of ideas and framework for thinking about the problem 
is massively important. Typically, when we deal, when I deal with politicians, it's not like they can need convincing about climate change. They just want to know what to do about it, and they need advice about how to develop these uh, frameworks for thinking about it that might be more effective going forward. But there's another facet to this that got touched upon briefly, which we didn't really talk about too much, but I think is important, and that is the public response and social behavior and the degree to which um, people's lives are going to be impacted, even by decarbonization, quite apart from having to deal with the effects of climate change. And so we've got to think hard about that. And that's something that I think we need to bring in to our thinking increasingly as we try and figure out how we're going to come up with solutions that are going to be palatable to society and to allow people to recognize the importance of what we're doing, not just for their um, for society more broadly, but actually in ways that they will agree to in terms of being uh, acceptable for their own lives. Um, this whole subject is immensely exciting. Uh, so just want to quickly say, it's been brilliant to be part of this, but it's part of discussions that are happening all around the world. There's lots of innovative ideas happening about new technologies and new ideas, the new ideas that have just been announced by Airbus for hydrogen planes. You know, you just think this is great. It's so exciting to be at this time thinking about how to totally change the way we're doing things. So it's while the issue is immensely serious, we should feel highly motivated. Uh, this is immensely exciting and really something good to be engaged with that ultimately is going to make our planet safer and more uh, habitable for people in the future in succeeding generations. So thank you very much, all of you. Wonderful uh, discussion. Look forward to more of it going forward. Thank you. And Sir Alex, indeed, thank you very much for this great wrap up and the very inspiring concluding remarks. And I would like to thank to all of our panelists for joining us today. If you'd like to access the Net Zero report discussed today, you'll be able to find it on our website at globalccsinstitute.com or www.energypolicycolumbia.edu. Um, a recording of this webcast will also be found on the Global CCS Institute's website. That concludes our Climate Week event. Thank you very much for joining us and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. <laughs>